Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 24. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 27. The account, or at least the beginning of the account of Jesus' resurrection appearance to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find these verses on page 885. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. This is the very word of God. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Maus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking with each other, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, as we come before you this morning to hear your, read, to hear your word proclaimed, we ask, Father, that you would be with us, that you would grant us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears that we might see and hear, and that you would open our hearts that we might believe. Father, give us eyes to see Jesus. Give us ears to hear the story. Give us hearts to believe that your plan of redemption has been fulfilled in him. And that even now the first fruits of that salvation are seen in our risen Lord. Father, we pray for all this in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. In the first paragraph of chapter 24, which we looked at last Sunday... We are told that the women early in the morning went to the tomb and found it empty. And as they were thinking about this, as they were pondering this, as they were wondering what possibly could have happened, they encountered there two angels who who asked them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Do you not remember what he told you? 
And as they remembered his words and as they heard the the message of the angels, they with joy ran to the apostles and to the other disciples who were gathered together and they reported all this to them. But of course we're told that they did not believe the report. But instead they regarded it as an idle tale. In verse 13 we, we pick up the story of two of those Disciples, two of the disciples who had heard that report were were told that they are on their way to a village named Emmaus, a a village some seven miles from Jerusalem. Most likely they are heading home after being in Jerusalem for the Passover. And we should recognize that their journey was not insignificant. It would take a, a normal journey or about two, two and a half hours to travel seven miles on Foot. And so their trip isn't like going down to exit 20 to, the, to see a movie. You know, that's seven miles away. This is more like going to the Atlanta airport, which is two, two and a half hours away. And as they were talking, as they were on this journey, they are talking with one another about the things that had happened. And a lot had happened. Remember, at this point, even though we looked at the passage months ago, it's only been a week since Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to the loud cheers and praises of the people. They had thought that he was coming to set them free from the tyranny of Rome. They they thought that he was the promised king. But of course things had not gone as they expected. Almost immediately upon arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus had picked a fight not with the Romans, but with the Jewish authorities, by driving those who sold and exchanged money out of the temple with a whip. And that had led to a series of of confrontation with those same authorities, which eventually climaxed in his arrest, his conviction, and his execution upon a Roman cross. Now normally, such an outcome would have been enough to prove false the claims of any self-designated Messiah. There had been many who, who claimed to be the one who had come to set Israel free. And when they had encountered the authorities and when they had been squashed like a bug, everyone went back to normal recognizing, well, I guess he wasn't really the one. But these disciples were still perplexed. How could they have been wrong about Jesus? They had seen it with their own eyes. There was simply no doubt that he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. How then could he have let himself be killed by the authorities? It just didn't make sense. If Elijah could call down fire from heaven to consume the soldiers of the king who who came out to arrest him, if Elisha was protected by a multitude of the heavenly host when the Syrians came after him, then surely a prophet like Jesus could have protected himself. Why didn't he? What, What had happened? The disciples didn't understand. They were confused and they were processing their confusion as they walked. And it's as this conversation is taking place that Jesus joins them. Now it would have 
not at all been unusual for, for travelers going in the same direction to, to travel together. After all, there is safety in numbers, so the disciples probably thought nothing of it when this stranger joined them. But of course, the question is, why did they regard him as a stranger? Clearly, these disciples knew who Jesus was. Why didn't they recognize him? Luke tells us simply that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And this is the first of several oddities related to Jesus' resurrection body. Here, the the disciples don't recognize him. At the end of this passage, which we didn't read this morning, Jesus will simply disappear from before their eyes. And in the next passage, he will appear in the midst of the other disciples gathered in a room that we're told in one of the other Gospels where the door was locked. And so what are we to make of these oddities? I I want you to hear me say they're not the main point of the story. This This is not what the story is about. But so that they won't be a distraction, I think it's worth a comment. What are we to make of these strange occurrences? Some believe that these oddities, these strange occurrences, that they hint at an essential difference between our present bodies and the resurrection body of Jesus, the the body like which we will have. And that is, of course, possible, but I don't think it's necessary, and I don't even think it's likely. The Holy Spirit is more than able to do such things with our present bodies. There's a story in the Old Testament when Elijah runs as fast as a chariot. There's another story where he is requesting an audience with the king and the the soldier to whom he presents his request is reluctant to go to the king and say, hey, Elijah wants to meet with you because he's afraid that the Holy Spirit will pick him up and take him somewhere else. As if that was something that was common for the Holy Spirit to do. And of course, we see something similar to this in the book of Acts when Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch Immediately after he has baptized him, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord carried him away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Suddenly, Philip found himself in another town all together. And so what we see Jesus doing after his resurrection, this this appearing and this disappearing, it may tell us something about his resurrection body, and by extension, about our future resurrection bodies, but but not necessarily. As I said, the the Holy Spirit is more than able to do such things with our present bodies. And therefore, I don't think we should spend much time speculating about what this tells us about our bodies. That's just not the point. The the point here is not to give us a glimpse of the the cool new powers we're going to have when we've been resurrected. But if that's not what's going on, then what is the point? Why does Jesus keep them from recognizing him? Why are their eyes closed, so to speak? Well, to get an answer to that question, I I want you to notice that Jesus' conversation with these two disciples follows the same basic pattern as the conversation of the angels with the women. Before they saw Jesus, or at least before they recognized him, First, the women were reminded of his words. And then here, these two disciples are reminded of the words concerning 
him. In both cases, they're, they're pointed to, to Jesus' words or to words about Jesus before they see him in his resurrection body. And I think this relates directly to one of the points that I made last Sunday. Believing in the resurrection, or as, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10, believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. Believing in the resurrection doesn't mean merely believing the fact. It means that. You have to believe the fact. But believing the fact is not enough. One New Testament scholar puts it this way. He says, even if Jesus did rise from the dead, so what? Very nice for him. What does it have to do with anything else? Why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? Is that just sort of a a one-off oddity, one-off thing that God did for one particular guy? Yeah, that was great for him, but but what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with, with anything else? I want you to understand that is the right question. And believing in the resurrection means having an answer. Believing in the resurrection means knowing what the resurrection has to do with anything else, or, or better said, what it has to do with everything else. Specifically, believing in the resurrection means believing that Jesus died and rose again in the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Believing in the resurrection means seeing his death and resurrection on the third day as the climax, as the fulfillment, as the completion of all that God has been doing since man first sinned in the Garden of Eden. Just think for a moment of what would have been likely to happen if God or if Jesus had appeared to the women or then if he had appeared to these two disciples or if he had appeared to the apostles without comment or explanation. If he just sort of showed back up on the scene. No doubt the, the disciples would have been amazed. They would have been overjoyed. They probably would have been a little bit confused. But more than likely, if Jesus just showed back up They would have regarded Jesus' death as some strange blip, as some strange and unexpected anomaly. as something they didn't expect to happen, but now that it's over, they're thankful and we can get back to business. You see, more than likely, they would have simply assumed that now their idea of what God was doing, their idea of God's plan of redemption was back on track. It was was scary there for a moment, It looked like Jesus' death had derailed everything, but now that he's alive again, we're back to where we were. We can get back on track. Things are back the way they were before his death. But you see, if you think that Jesus' resurrection simply means that things are back the way they were before he died, then you've missed the whole point. Because Jesus' death doesn't mean we've gone back to where things were. But rather, Jesus' death means that we've gone forward to where God always intended to take us. And so before showing himself, before revealing himself alive to his disciples, he reminds them of his words. And he reminds them of the words concerning him so that 
by understanding his death, by, by understanding that it was necessary that Christ should suffer these things before entering into his glory. By understanding his death, they might begin to understand his resurrection. And that's exactly what I want us to do here this morning. I, I want us to, to review, yes, what we know, but to what we so easily forget. I want us to review what we know about the purpose of Jesus' death, that we might begin to grasp afresh the significance of his resurrection. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. We're told that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures concerning himself. He showed them how, how the whole story was indeed about him. I've heard it said by countless people that they wish they could have been there for that Bible study. Maybe you've thought that at one point in your life upon reading this account. You're like, man, how I wish I could have been there to hear Jesus explain the whole Old Testament. How, how I wish I could have heard him say how it all points to him. And I, I must admit that, that I have often wondered why we don't at least have a summary of this teaching we have summaries, sometimes even extended summaries, of other things that, that Jesus taught. We have a, a summary of his Sermon on the Mount. We have a, a summary of his parables of the kingdom. Why don't we have a summary of this teaching? Well, obviously that was the Holy Spirit's choice, but if I was going to guess, if I was going to, to speculate, it seems, it seems likely to me that the Holy Spirit meant to entice us to go back to the entire Old Testament and read it with fresh eyes. He, he meant to send us back to the Old Testament, to, to read it looking for Jesus. Having seen Jesus' death and resurrection, he, he wants us to go back and reread the whole thing in the light of the end. You see, if we had a summary of Jesus' teaching here, we, we might think that, that only the examples that he cited no matter how many there were, you know, it would be limited to what he could do in a couple hours. It would be limited to what could be summarized in a few chapters. And if all we had was Jesus' teaching, then we might think, well, then he pointed out all the signs. But Jesus says, no, it's not just a few signs. It's not just a few clues scattered here and there throughout the story. The whole thing is about me. Go back and reread the whole story. Go back and reread every text looking for me. Because I am where the whole thing leads. And this morning, in just the few minutes that I have left, I, I want to try to do that in summary fashion. I, I want to walk us through the whole Old Testament. I know that scares some of you and you think we're going to be here till like Tuesday. But it, we're going to try in about ten minutes to walk through the whole Old Testament. And just to remember why and how the whole thing points to Christ. So where do we begin? Well, we begin... At the beginning, we begin with, with creation. And you remember the story. In the beginning, God spoke and the, the universe came into being. And the world that he created, it was good, even very good. But notice, it was also incomplete. Yes, it was good. There was nothing broken. There was nothing sinful. But there was still work to be done. There was a garden, but now that garden needed to be extended to the end of the world. All of creation needed to be subdued. It needed to be brought under the dominion of God. The kingdom of God needed to be established on earth as it was in heaven. 
And this is the work that he assigned to mankind, those whom he had created in his image. He gave them the task of establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That is the essential meaning of the dominion mandate given to mankind in the garden. But of course, that original mandate wasn't followed. The original goodness of of creation didn't last because our first parents rebelled against God. They rebelled by seeking to establish their own kingdom. That's what eating the fruit is all about. Rather than listening to God, rather than willfully and joyfully accepting the role of a servant of the king, they sought to assert themselves as king. They sought to do what was right in their own eyes. They wanted to be like God. And their rebellion introduced sin and death into the world. Not only did man come under the power of sin, but all of creation, Paul tells us, was subjected to futility and decay. And that's the world that we all live in, even now. We live in a world subjected to decay. We live in a world where where things are, are entangled with futility. It's a world that makes us groan. One of the reasons, this is one of the reasons that I I tell people that when they're they're looking for opportunities to evangelize, that you hear your neighbors express interest in the gospel far more often than you know. Someone doesn't have to ask you specifically about Jesus to be expressing an interest in the gospel. Even if they don't recognize it, when they are groaning at injustice in this world, when they are bemoaning the things that are broken and the things that are wrong, They're looking for the hope of the gospel. When they speak about their own powerlessness to change, their own powerlessness to become the people they want to be, when they they talk about the way that they are entangled in habits they simply cannot break, they are expressing a longing for the hope of the gospel. When they talk about a sense of of purposelessness and, and vanity and just an aimlessness to life and wondering what's the point, They're expressing a longing for the call of the gospel. When they express their own fears and their own anxieties about what might come to pass in the future, about the bad things that could happen, they are expressing a longing for the gospel. You see, the brokenness of this world is the result of man's rebellion against the king. And the gospel is the promise of God to put it all right again. It's exactly what we see in the language of even the curse that God pronounces upon those who have rebelled against him. Even in the language of the curse, Genesis 3.15, the the first announcement of the gospel, God says that he's going to do two things. He says that he will put enmity between the, the seed of man and the serpent, Satan. Well, think about what that means. That's reconciliation language. Man has aligned himself with Satan. He has made himself an enemy of God. And yet God says that I'm going to bring you back onto my side. I'm going to restore the proper enmity that that ought to exist between you and my enemies. I am going to reconcile you to myself. And not only am I going to reconcile you to myself, but I am going to destroy the works of the devil. Satan's head will be crushed. 
This world will be put right. God's good creation will be restored. And His original vision for a kingdom filling the universe will be realized. That's the scope of the gospel. That's what God has in store. That is the the plan of redemption. But notice, there's a cost. Even in the the original promise, we we hear it, that, that yes, the serpent's head will be crushed. But in the process, the Savior's heel will be bruised. And there you have the the first hint that the road to glory will pass through the cross. But the promise is there. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God's faithfulness to that promise. God unfolding His, His promise to put things right, to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. In Noah, we we have a story of judgment, but but what does that story tell us? It tells us that the judgment that is deserved will not come in full until the plan of redemption is complete. God will not allow judgment to override his Promise. Yes, before the flood, every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And yes, after the flood, every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. But the judgment that is deserved will not come until God has made time to do what He is going to do. Until He has had time to execute His plan of redemption. And of course, we see that plan begin to unfold when He calls Abraham and promises to make him into a great nation and to make him a great kingdom on the earth. Abraham's family will become the kingdom of God on earth. But they're not called only for their own blessing. This is, this is not a call to set them aside from everybody else, but rather they are being blessed. They will become the kingdom for the blessing of all the families of the earth. Through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what begins in the promised land will one day fill the earth. The kingdom will extend to fill all of God's good creation. And of course, with Moses, we we see Abraham's children truly become a nation as they are called out of slavery into, uh, into freedom and led into the promised land, a picture of the redemption that God has in store. But at the same time, with Moses, we also see a problem. Abraham's children are hard-hearted and stiff-necked. They are slow to learn and quick to go in the wrong direction. They are simply incapable of being the people of God. They are simply incapable of manifesting on earth the kingdom of God as it is in heaven. And so we have a problem. How can, can God fulfill His promises when the people that He has chosen are slaves To sin. The sacrificial system that God gives to them hints at a solution. The the guilt of sin can be covered. There is the possibility of forgiveness and and atonement. But even as the sacrificial system points to to a possible solution, it also reveals a, a further problem. Because the sacrifices by themselves are not enough. They can't really deal with the problem of of sin. And that's why they have to be repeated constantly. No sooner has, has God made atonement for the sins of the people than they have sinned again. 
A better, more powerful sacrifice is needed. A, a sacrifice that deals not only with the guilt of sin, but with its power and with its pollution. And so we, we long for the Lamb of God who will truly take away the sins of the world. But as the story of these people unfold, we, we see it in the book of Judges, this, this repeated cycle showing their sin. They are, they are sinners who, who, who sin, are, are brought into judgment, repent and cry out to God, and then are delivered. And this goes on again and again and again for some 400 years. But then in David, we finally get a glimpse of the king that the people need, they need a king who will lead in righteousness. They need a king who will subdue not only the enemies of God's people, but will subdue God's people themselves to himself. But while David gives us a glimpse of that king, he is not that king. For he himself is, is guilty of, of murder and, and adultery. He himself leads the people into sin. And so again, we long for David's greater son, we long for the king who can subdue God's people and truly establish a lasting kingdom on earth. But it doesn't seem to come. David's sons remain on the throne, but one after the other fails to be the king. And eventually, David's kingdom, Abraham's children, the people of Israel, are led out of the promised land back into Slavery, back to where it seemingly all started. First the, the northern tribes at the hands of Assyria, and then the, the southern tribes at the hands of the Babylonians. But even in the midst of this exile, God sends prophets. Yes, prophets to, to remind them of why these things have happened, to, to point out to them their unfaithfulness, but also to remind them that while they have been unfaithful, God has not. That God has not forgotten His promises. That He will keep His word. That He will prove to be the faithful one. That He will send one who will establish God's kingdom on earth. But, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the one who comes as the servant of God to establish the kingdom, will be a suffering servant. He will be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It is only by his wounds that God's people will be healed. His stripes will purchase our peace. And of course, the one who comes is Jesus. He comes pro proclaiming the, the kingdom, announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand with his arrival. And if they were not familiar with the Old Testament, they were familiar with the prophets, they should have known that the one who comes to bring the kingdom is the one who is going to have to die as the Lamb of God. The one who is going to have to suffer as a man of sorrows. That through his suffering, we might receive life. That through his curse we might receive blessing. That is who Jesus is. He, he is the one who comes to, to bring to fulfillment all of God's promises. Not by defeating Rome on the battlefield, but by defeating death itself upon the cross. 
That is the mission of the Son of God. That is what He came to do. And it's only when you understand that that His death was His mission. It wasn't a, a blip on the screen. It wasn't an unexpected anomaly. It was the mission He came to accomplish. It's only when you see that that you can begin to understand the true meaning of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection doesn't take us back. It takes us forward. What is the resurrection? The resurrection is the outpouring of the salvation that God has in store for all His people on Jesus ahead of schedule. As the first fruits, Paul says, of what He has in store for all of us, through the resurrection we catch a glimpse of what God intends to do for all of us. The restoration of God's original purpose. The restoration of us as His image bearers, establishing and bringing the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. That's the good news of the gospel. You see, resurrection doesn't just mean that we're raised back to this life. It's not this life forever, but it is new life. It is the life of the age to come. And when we begin to see that, when we begin to understand the the full significance of the resurrection, when we begin to see it as the, the first fruits of what God has in store for us, it sets us free to live even now to the praise of His glory. For we know where He is taking us. We know what He has in store for us. We we have no need to lay up treasures now. We have no need to, to, to seek life here in this failing world. We have life and we have it eternal. We have treasure in heaven beyond imagination. We have an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God that is undefiled, unfading, and imperishable. Therefore, we ought to be the freest people in the world to live as servants of the King, seeking His glory, knowing that our glory is insepar- that our good is inseparably bound up with the glory of our King. That's what the resurrection means. And that, I am convinced, is why Jesus doesn't show Himself first, but rather He reminds them of His words. He says, listen, remember why I died. Because when you remember why I died, you'll remember what it means for me to be alive again. It's not that we've gone back. It's that we have gone forward. It's that God, through His Son, is making all things new. And that He is giving that new creation as a new inheritance to all those who call Jesus their Savior and Lord. And because that is the blessing of the resurrection, That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. And we thank you for your grace. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see your Son and and minds and hearts to, to know and to understand his resurrection, to see it as our sure and certain hope that we might be set free now, Father, to live to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.